Hello, hello. It's working. <coughs> I have 20 minutes, right? Okay. Okay. 50. Drew, 50 minutes? 50 minutes? I'm teasing you. I'm teasing you. <laughs> I know, I'm teasing you. Okay. Hi, I'm Morgan, and we're in uh, Mark chapter 14 tonight. So we're coming upon the end of Mark. Um, this is actually a very sombering text, um, really heavy, not complicated, just heavy. That's all I know how to describe it. Uh, we're going to look at the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus' encounter there, his prayers there, um, how he foretells, Jesus foretells Peter's denial and then he is betrayed and arrested, and that's what we're going to look at tonight. So, and you guys want to open your Bibles to that? I'm just going to jump right in. I'm going to read some, and then I'm going to talk some. That's kind of how I'm going to do it, okay? So, if you guys look at Mark 14, remember, um, I guess it's been a couple weeks. I believe you talked last time, and um, you guys talked about the Passover. That's what happened right bef- kind of right before this, okay? All right. Um, verse 26 says this, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So Passover's over. That's kind of what that's signifying. The hymn they would have sung would have probably been a psalm. Uh, And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all, they all being the disciples, said the same. I think that it's interesting that, I don't know if you, how you guys have ever been taught this section before, or if you've ever read this section before, but we talk a lot about how they're saying, we won't deny you, and Jesus says, you will. And it's interesting because that seems to be all that the disciples heard of what Jesus was saying. But he actually says a lot more here. He talks, he talks about, um, you're going to fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will be- go before you to Galilee. And it's like they miss that whole part of what he's saying. And all they hear is, um, we're going to be scattered. We're going to fall away. And Peter jumps in. He's always the one that runs his mouth the quickest. That's just kind of his nature. I would take after Peter. I do that same thing. So I do not fault him for that. Um, although others rightfully do. So, um, but Peter just basically jumps in and says, I will not deny you. I'm not going to fall away because of you. That's what Peter says. And I want you to know his heart is good in this. His loyalty to Jesus is good in this and right in this. But what their problem is, is their loyalty is misplaced. They have their loyalty and their sight set on Jesus coming back and being the Messiah that's going to overcome Roman oppression. That's still what they're thinking. And they're wrong. Like They're not catching on that the quote that he said was, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. Well, who's the I? That would be God. So not understanding, like, no, these are like the events that God has in order. They're not getting that. Their loyalty is misplaced. That is a quote I will strike the sheep and the I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. That's a quote from Zechariah, thirteen seven, and um, it's about judgment, and it's 
basically, one of the things that's kind of interesting about that passage is it doesn't seem to be in Zechariah that the shepherd is at any fault. The sheep are, and striking the shepherd is just kind of a prelude to striking the sheep in that text, in that prophecy. And um, what happens is two-thirds of the sheep are killed off, and a third of the sheep are refined and brought back to the Lord and, and have a renewed relationship. Um, but that's kind of where that whole idea, that whole idea came from. <clears throat> um, one of the commentaries I read, so you just have to know, though, um, that they have heard and rejected the idea that they would fall away, but they did not understand that God was the one who would take Jesus' life. Okay, that's what the disciples aren't getting. Um, one of the commentaries I read says it this way. It's not they weren't that they, as in the disciples, were not loyal to Jesus. They were, in fact, ready to die to save his life. But Jesus did not want his life saved. It is simply not possible to give your life to save someone who goes willingly to his own death. So they weren't getting, they weren't seeing it. They were confused. In fact, as I was studying and reading this, I kept thinking the whole time. I told Scott this earlier today. I feel like the title of this whole talk could be The Confused Disciples. I mean, yeah, The Confused Disciples and the Suffering Messiah. That's what I feel like we could call this. Because I feel like that's what's happening. It's not, I don't believe it's like they're being dumb. I mean, I think we can say that, but I really honestly think they're confused. And so it's, it's just interesting to see their confusion all throughout this text. So what the disciples didn't hear, like I said, was more important than what they heard. Because it does refer to Zechariah. And it's this idea that God actually is in control of what's going on. He's going to be the one striking the shepherd. Okay, then he says that he also says this in that in that section, and they miss this part. I um, but after I am raised up, hello, it's talking about the resurrection. Okay, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Um, the Jewish expectations of the promises of God they're really closely tied to the area of Judea and Jerusalem, so it would have been a little surprising that um, the resurrected Christ is going to be leading them away from Jerusalem and into Galilee, where his ministry was. Um, but the disciples don't even comment on that because they're just Peter's just freaking out that Jesus said that he's going to fall away. Okay, um, the fundamental theme in this little section of 26 through 30, 31, is that God is about to act. And you need to know that. God is about to act, and the disciples miss it, caught up in their loyalty to Jesus. They miss that God is determining the coming events. All right, I'm going to read a little bit more. If you jump to 32, 32 through 42 is all about Jesus in Gethsemane. Okay, and it says, And they went to a place called Gethsemane. Gethsemane is a garden. It was outside the city of Jerusalem uh, on a hillside of the Mount of Olives. So it's like Jerusalem, let's say Jerusalem's here, and like the temple is kind of here. There's the Kidron Valley, and then there's the Mount of Olives kind of here, and it would have been somewhere kind of right over here. That's where the Garden of Gethsemane was, is, and that's where they went. Um, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, uh, Jesus went a little bit further. Lots of commentators would say kind of like a stone's throw is what that kind of indicates. So it's not like he would have disappeared from 
where the disciples were. He just went a little further on. It says, And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. I thought this was really interesting. The word watch there, how Jesus tells his disciples to watch, is the same Greek word that we ta- that Drew and I talked about a couple weeks ago um, in Mark 13, when we're talking about the Day of Atonement and the end times when he says, watch, keep watch, be alert, stay awake, is kind of how we read it. It's the same Greek word. It's this idea of watch for what's going to happen. Uh, Stay in a state of readiness. Specifically, watch to see what the Lord will do is the idea behind that. Like Jesus is telling them again, like watch and see what the Lord will do. Like stay awake, keep active, stay attentive. I also think it's really interesting and something I learned. So if any of you know otherwise, please correct me if I'm wrong. But in Exodus, actually this idea of watching came from Exodus after Jesus had, Jesus, after God had um, rescued the Israelites from captivity from the Egyptians. Um, it kind of recaps it in Exodus 12, I think 42. And it says um, that they, it reminds everybody, the readers, that um, that they were in slavery to them for th- 430 years, and then the Lord brought them out from under the hand of the Egyptians. And then it says, the Lord watched over them um, by night. He kept watch over them, is how it says it. And then it says that the Israelites actually d- had a practice of keeping watch for what the Lord would do, like that they would actually practice that every generation after um, because of what the Lord did for them. So I just think that's interesting. Um, on this night, we see that keeping watch means looking for God to act again decisively to save the people of his covenant. Okay, that's what, that's what this idea leads to. So what is the Lord going to do? Watch and see what the Lord's going to do. Well, we know on this side of things that he's going to, pour out his, he's going to begin to pour out his wrath and judgment on Jesus. Like that's what's eventually going to happen. Watch and see what the Lord will do. Okay, that's what the Lord's doing. All right? The... Disciples don't, they just don't get that. They don't understand. Um, Jesus knows what's going to happen, which is why he is, I think, so, so agonizing over what's going on in the garden. I think he understands what's coming. Um, he, this is the, the phrases that, that uh, Mark uses are, began to be greatly distressed and troubled. His soul was very sorrowful, even unto death fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. Luke records that uh, Jesus was in such anguish that he prayed all the more earnestly, and his sweat was like that of drops of blood falling to the ground. Like, I don't think we can understand what's happening to Jesus, really, to the extent of the anguish that he's going through in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, Remember what you guys have been learning all along is that there's kind of two parts to Mark, and the last part of Mark is the Messiah must suffer, right? You've heard that's going to be coming. I believe this is kind of the first push to that. I believe that it seems here that Jesus is suffering right here, like a suffering of his soul is happening. That seems to be what's happening here. And he says this, Jesus cries out to God, and he says, Abba, Father, which is a very intimate, intimate circumstance, intimate way to address God. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. 
Abba Father, all things are possible for you, not as I will, but as you will, sounds very, very reminiscent of the way he teaches us to pray in Matthew 6 on the Sermon on the Mount. And then he says this interesting phrase, and it's something that I've been wrestling with as I've been studying it, okay? And he says, remove this cup from me, is what he says. In the Old Testament, this is really important, the cup is most often used figuratively um, as a symbol for God's judgment. So that's really important to know as you're reading this. That That's kind of what Jesus is talking about. So when you remember that this is what is a picture of the judgment of God, when he says remove this cup, it kind of adds to what he's saying. Okay, so basically Jesus' repeated use of the word cup signifying like his, his coming death, his impending death, what's going to happen to him. Basically, it take, this makes this statement take on a greater significance. So when he pleads, Abba, Father, take this cup from me, we realize his anguish is growing as he's understanding this prospect of feeling the anger God has towards all of sin and his wrath is going to be coming upon Jesus. That's what he's anticipating. And he cries out, Abba, Father, please, if you can take this cup from me, please, I know it's possible for you to do this. Please remove this cup, but not as I will, as you will. And we know the cup is not removed, right? And also it's interesting that he's going to go back and he's going to find the disciples sleeping. And And it's going to, Peter, James, and John specifically, and it's going to, not say every time what he's doing, but it's this idea of him repeating this prayer again and again and again. That's the idea, is that he continues to kind of earnestly be praying this sentiment to the Lord. Um, Jesus says again in John's gospel, shall I not drink of the cup the Father has given me? That's what he says when they come to take him away in John 18. He refers to the cup again. And I think this is what I've been wrestling with the most. I started studying cup, okay, because I wanted to understand the judgment, and it's nuts all the times it's used, okay? Um, But we also, like, take this little tiny cup every week, and it's what Rachel was talking about a couple weeks ago. We take this cup, and I'm not going to night cry. I'm not trying to, (laughs) but it's a little overwhelming to me when you really start understanding the wrath that Jesus took on in order that we may take this cup of the new covenant that he promised us. And we get to remember that like every week. And it just, it floors me that, that he loves us that much. You know, I don't pity what happened to him. I know he doesn't need our pity, but I love him. And it's just a little gut wrenching and um, overwhelming to really understand uh, the wrath that he's about to take on so that we get to take this little cup of juice and we get to remember um, what he's done for us. And then our cup gets to just overflow with the love of the Lord. That's a little overwhelming and humbling to me. So that's been a little overwhelming. And I think it's also interesting that that's the only way that this works. That if you're a follower of Jesus, and you decide to give your life to the Lord, and you deny yourself, and you take up your cross, and you follow the Lord, then you take this little cup, and you remember that every week. And if you don't, if you are not a follower of Jesus, and that is not how you're going to live your life, 
like you're going to take the you're going to receive the wrath of God like that cup is not like it's not pardoned for you and so I just it's just interesting this is the only way that it could have worked you know anyways okay jump back into verse 37 And he came and found them sleeping. So after he said this, he came and found the disciples sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch for one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing. This is human spirit. This is not talking about Holy Spirit here. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping. And then Mark points out this idea of the flesh is weak, right? For their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came a third time, and he said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going, See, my betrayer is at hand. So Jesus is praying. The disciples are, are sleeping. The spirit is willing. The flesh is weak. The spirit that the disciples have is to remain loyal to him. But the flesh is weak. The third time after Jesus goes to them, it seems that the time for watching had passed. And they'd failed the test. The hour has come. It's time for Jesus to be betrayed. And immediately, it says in verse 43, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer, I think it's so interesting, it keeps using this word betrayed, betrayer, betrayed, betrayer. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. He said, Rabbi, and then he kissed him. The breach of intimacy here (coughs) is even deeper than I think it could have been anticipated by Jesus saying, one of you will betray me. The fact that he kissed him is is a normal sign of someone, that a, a normal greeting. But the fact that he says rabbi before that just kind of throws you for a little loop. It seems just kind of crazy that, you know, the one I follow, the one I sit under, the one who teaches me, right? The one I want to be like. And then he betrays him. I also think it's interesting. Betrayal usually lends itself <clears throat> to this idea that the one that's doing the betraying is very sneaky. Um, for a betrayal to be successful, that person is usually surprised by it. And Jesus is not surprised at all here, remember? Judas is not the one coordinating the events of this night. And Jesus made that, has made that very clear. And so I just think that's really interesting because all the sort of betrayals we see, I think of like Survivor and someone getting blindsided, Okay. And that's not what happened here because Jesus knew what was coming, which it didn't surprise him. I still think there was probably hurt there, Uh, but anyways, and they laid hands on him, verse 46, and seized him. But one of those who stood by 
well, you guys can guess who that's going to be, drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Sounds like something I would have done. (laughs) And Jesus said to them, Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. So the one who stood by, the other let, and then cut off the guy's ear, the other gospels let us know that was Peter. Again, again, I believe that he was being loyal in the way he knew how to be. And he still was confused and didn't understand that this is like what God is doing. And I think it's John's account um, where Jesus actually takes the ear and it says that he like healed it and attached it back to the man's head. Okay. And he says, okay, I'm, no, this is part of what, what's going to happen. And then uh, there's some commentators who actually mention a little bit about the idea of the robber um, and in the temple teaching, referring back to whenever Jesus had gone into the temple and said, do not make this is, you guys have turned this house of worship into a den of robbers, which is kind of interesting because he's saying, am I a robber? I've been in the temple's teaching in the daylight and here you come at me in the darkness, <laughs> you know? It's just an interesting thing to think about. And then, the, this verse, 50, is um, another one that has been just all over me all week long, okay? The, verse 50 is very short, uh, but it's kind of haunting, I think. And this is why. It just says, and they all left him and fled. That's all it says. They all left him and fled. It's like our story comes full circle, right? You all deny me. You all fall away from me. For the scriptures say, it's written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. And then at the end, like at the end of that night, they're all, they've all fled. That's what happens. They don't understand what's going on. They're not, they want to they fight and they don't understand that like this is, this is what has to happen. Then, this is a really weird thing, and it's only in Mark, and it's a naked guy that's running away from the situation. <laughs> I, it is really weird, because it's like this really somber moment, and then there's this naked guy, and so, <laughs> that's weird. I've never even seen a naked guy, so I just think it's kind of a weird thing, okay? And this is what it says. And a, I, that's going to be recorded now for the world. And, <laughs> edit, eat. Okay, and this is what it says. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. That's literally what it says. Um, there are commentators, there are a couple of things here. There are some common, and I don't know which one it is, and I kind of don't believe either one of these. I still just am a loss for why it's here. But some people think that the young man that followed him, this is Mark is including himself in this text. They think that he's writing himself in there, uh, but he's not alluding to it. But the primary basis that I could find for for people thinking that is that it's not in the other Gospels. And... I don't know if that's a good enough reason to conclude that this is Mark. So um, it could be Mark. It might not be Mark. I don't really know if that's relevant or important, whether it's Mark or not. Um, The other thing I've heard that I was reading about was the linen cloth. They mentioned that twice in here. 
And the next time that word is used is whenever they're wrapping Jesus's body in linens to be put in the tomb. And so I've had, there were some people that said it could be some sort of weird foreshadow to like where he just mentioned something in passing and then the same language is used later. Um, again, I really don't know for sure why it's here, but I do think um, why I couldn't find any legitimately great explanation of that. Um, I do think that it's interesting that whoever this man was, apparently he followed Jesus. He's not a disciple, but he's followed Jesus. Um, and I do think it's interesting that he left everything that he had to flee the scene. And I, I think the reason I find that interesting is because Jesus kind of makes it clear there's only one way to follow him. And it is to deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow him. It's this idea of leaving everything behind to follow the Lord. And this man just left everything behind in this moment to flee the scene. And I, and I just think that's an interesting idea. Um, because if you don't understand that that's how you follow Jesus, I really do believe that you're following of him. If you don't understand that it's a complete denial of yourself, then I think that it, your attempt to follow him is going to end up in disillusionment or uh, betrayal. I just think that's what's going to happen. You're going to flee at some point. Now, <clears throat> if we really understand the call of Jesus to be denying ourselves and for his sake in the gospel, then I believe that we do not flee from him. Uh, but we follow him. And I believe that's why we remember each week and we drink a cup of the new covenant in our sharing communion with one another. And because, again, this is just in doing this research of cup and shepherd. This is something I've just learned through this whole process. But because Jesus drinks the cup of wrath on our behalf, we get to join with a psalmist that's pretty famous named David and saying this, the Lord is my shepherd. And this is what I just keep saying. <laughs> this is crazy. The Lord is my shepherd. He prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. He anoints my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's what I get to say because of what this passage teaches, and that blows my mind. That's as much as I can tell you without getting through Mark 16. So we'll stop there. We'll take a break, and then Scott's going to come up and talk about a little bit of different things. <laughs> Let us begin. All right. So is anybody ever, on, on, on uh, the week leading up to Easter, does anybody ever follow along with like a timeline of what Jesus does on each day? Have you ever done that? Okay. Well, on, on, uh, on Sunday night, my family, you know, you can look up, you know, Jesus' last week, timeline of his, of his Passion Week or whatever, and you can find a, um, a list, and it just kind of walks through, and some of them, there's a bunch of different ones, and some of them have scripture references, but we've been kind of doing that each night, just talking about the different things that Jesus did on that particular day, and you'll never guess, everything that we're talking about 
tonight happened on the Thursday night of Passion Week, actually. It was crazy. So somehow that worked out. Um, Because literally Passover for them started on Friday, but the day started on at sundown Thursday. Like their days start at sundown and end at sundown. If that makes sense. So no. Yeah, is that right? Yeah. Okay. So 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 this is all going on. I mean, literally the week leading up to it is is happening. They're having the disciples are having Passover meal with with Jesus. They're having conversation, and then they leave and they go into the garden. And it and then it's in late in the into the night is when he's arrested and goes before them. And of course before the rooster crows, which is when sunrise, right? So so you kind of see what's happening. Uh, Just interesting. So as I was reading and praying, studying through this this text, two things jump out at me. One is Jesus' prayer, which we'll talk about. And the other thing is the disciples' um, confusion, as, as Morgan pointed out. Now Mark seems to be drawing like this contrast between um, Jesus' faithfulness through the end, through the difficulty, and, and the disciples' you know, unfaithfulness and, and giving up. And, and Jesus seems to be faithful when the disciples aren't in order for them to be ultimately faithful in the end. Um, and so his faithfulness preceded theirs. His faithfulness paved a way for them um, to have, have the, even the ability to be faithful to him. Uh, but how could they not see this coming? I mean, I, I think we've talked about this enough, just um, how, how Jesus seems to make things clear, and it seems really clear to us, because obviously we're standing on the side of the cross, and we can look back and read the account, but but he seems to tell, I think it's three or four times he tells them he's going to die. He's, he's going to be handed over to the authorities and they're going to kill him. And he's going to raise again. So he's, he's told them this is what's going to happen and he's warned them. Not to mention, Mark um, flies through this Passover account. And so, But turn to John 13, okay? Because this, this is another thing that, that jumped out at me this week. I have this um, I have this resource called um, the Harmony of the Gospels, and it's basically I can't remember the guy's name Gun, Thomas Gundry and somebody else. They they took they took all the Gospels and they put them all together, so you can kind of read them um, and read how they how they happen. It's a really phenomenal resource. When I picked it up, I was reading through, and of course the Synoptic Gospels have have pretty much the same things happening. They just give different different details. And then John's gospel comes in a lot of times when the others aren't and fills in a lot more gaps. But, but for a large chunk, chapter thir- chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17 all happen in the middle of kind of where we're describing. They, it happens during the Passover meal and leading up to them going to the garden. And so you think, look at, look at this. I mean, look at all that's there. There is a ton there. Um, Jesus washing their feet in 13. Jesus telling them that he's the, he's the way, the truth, and the life in 14. Jesus telling them, um, abide in me, because apart from me you can do nothing in 15. And then in 16, he tells them in verse 5, I'm, I'm, going, to, I'm going to the one who sent me, and you will not see me. Okay? In verse 5 he says, it is to your advantage that I go away and the Spirit come. In verse 16 he says, a little while, and you will no longer see me. So he's, he's telling them this over and over. Okay, this just happened literally hours before they're in the garden 
maybe a couple. And then in 17, he prays that, that God would keep them from the evil one. He prays for them. And so right after 17 is when they get up and go to the garden. And some think that maybe he's walking to the garden on the way and he's praying on the way. There's different ideas about that. But, but literally, it's, it's hours before they're arrested. And so, it, it, it's, to me, it's still, it's, it brings up this like, wow, how could they not see this coming? And I think, I think it's because the disciples believed something that we often believe. Um, that victory happens through conquering. In their understanding, victory was coming. Is Jesus is the King, and He's the David-like King, which is what they said on Good Friday. Is what they said when 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 they're laying palm branches down, they're crying out, "Hosanna, Hosanna, um, the Son of David!" And they're proclaiming His kingdom, His kingship coming. And in their mind, victory is coming, and victory happens through conquering. And and that is not what is is the case. And, and you and I actually fall into this often whenever we, whenever we pray that, um, that, that nothing difficult would ever happen to us. And yet we all want growth and maturity. We all want um, the fruit of the difficulties, but we don't want difficult things to happen to us. Whenever we kind of want those things and pray for those things, we're, we oftentimes can fall into the same um, idea. That we're, we're, we're wanting victory through conquering, only through victory. Victory through victory, instead of oftentimes how it comes. And whenever we pray for bad things to go away and only good things like health and wealth and happiness, I mean, we're, we're falling into the same kind of idea that, that um, you know, victory happens when, when everything goes well for me, when all the good things happen. And, and that just doesn't seem to be the way God operates. In fact, rarely operates. And so I want to I show you just briefly um, something that came to me um, earlier this summer, but it's this unfolding story, this development of the kingdom of God that comes at victory coming through suffering, the victory coming through difficulty. So think about Adam and Eve. You have them working the ground, to like the work of their, right, his, his, um, his punishment for sin was he's going to have to work the ground and he's going to have to labor. It's going to be hard work and then the fruit will come. And for the woman, it was pain before childbirth. Uh, with, with Jacob, you had 14 years of serving, uh, of, of basically labor in order to get Rachel, his wife. In Joseph's story, you have this royal ascension that happens through, through suffering, through, through being sold into slavery and thrown into prison, falsely accused, and, and then all of a sudden. In Moses's, you have 40 years of, of wandering in the desert before the bush that's on fire but doesn't burn up. Um, David's life, you have 10 years of wilderness before, as anointed king, mind you, like Samuel had already been there, had, had already declared him to be the anointed king of Israel, and then 10 years of running for his life in the wilderness from Saul, from the Saul the king trying to kill him before he was, um, before he was announced king. Uh, you, you also have God's power through human weakness for, for God's glory in David's life. In, in the Psalms, um, is this seemed to be constant, constant theme of um, as David as the, the suffering righteous one, um, the righteous sufferer. 
in, in Acts, you have this church that's birthed in the midst of persecution. In fact, um, I mean, it's, it's birthed into chaos. And, and people are being persecuted. And, and then in chapter 8, they're scattered all over. And, and, and then before peace comes uh, in chapter 9. In Paul's life, um, God tells Ananias, okay, I don't know if you remember the story, on, Paul's on the road to Damascus, he's blinded, um, and God speaks to Ananias and says, hey, this guy Paul's coming, you need to go talk to him. He's like, Paul the persecutor? I don't think so. He says, yes. This is what he says. He says, I will show him how much he will what? Suffer in my name. And Paul that lived that story. Paul was this, this missionary that everywhere he'd go, people wanted to beat him up. And oftentimes beat him up. Like left him for dead, beat him up. And so he goes through a list of things of being beaten and stoned and whiplashed and shipwrecked. And, and this is Paul's life as a church planner. And so, throughout the Bible, you, you have this, this development of God's kingdom. And you have exaltation through humility. You have power through weakness. You have victory through suffering. You have life through death. And, and I just find it interesting, um, this, this contrasting idea that, that we think, you know, we, we get caught up in. I don't, I don't think we oftentimes consciously think about it. I think just, we just get caught up in wanting everything to go well for us. And, and the disciples, they're, they're watching Jesus, and they're going, no, 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 this is not going to happen. I will fight, I'll do whatever. And he's told them, this is what's going to happen, umpteen times. And then, no, because they weren't, they weren't willing to follow him at his terms. They weren't willing to submit to him. And so Jesus you know, shows his disciples that, like, like Morgan said, what it means to follow Him, to, to deny, him, deny themselves, pick up their cross, and follow Him. And up until now, they didn't really know what it meant. And, and I love what Robert Coleman says in his book, Master Plan of Evangelism. It's a book, it's a book about how Jesus made disciples, and um, written a long time ago. It's kind of a classic book. But he said that, I thought this was really interesting. So think about, think about the process in which the disciples are spending time with Jesus, and and they come to this realization of what he's asking of them. Just think about how long and all the things that he had to tell them and all the times they didn't get it. Listen to what Robert Coleman says. Following Jesus seemed easy enough at first, but that was because they had not followed him very far. It soon became apparent that being a disciple of Christ involved far more than a joyful acceptance of the messianic promise. It meant the surrender of one's whole life to the master, an absolute submission to his authority. And Jesus not only wanted that for them, but what to me, what the prayer in, in the garden shows is that he not only wanted that for them, but he also modeled that for them perfectly. He modeled um, obedient submission to the Father in this moment. And it's a beautiful moment. And so, um, on this Thursday night, Jesus, um, of his last week, he shows, he shows us, he shows the disciples of what it means to live a life following after Jesus. And, and I'm going to point out just three things that kind of jump out at me. And um, I, I think they're, they're helpful. The first one is a life of service. Um, so speaking of John, or, yeah, John 13, 
This is one of my favorite verses in, in the Gospels. Uh, maybe in the Gospel of John. Maybe in the Gospels of all of them. Um, is verse 3. John 13, 3. This baffles me. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into His hands, and that He had come from God and was going back to God. Okay, so now replace your name with Jesus' name. Just hypothetically speaking. Anthony, (laughs) knowing all that the Father had given Him, that given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, what does Anthony do? What do you do in that moment? Like if you know all things are in your hands, and you're from God and you're going right back to God, what do you say? What do you do to exercise? Because in that moment, you're going to... That, that verse, John, is, is setting up this like, okay... What happens next is going to give us a really big clue into the nature of God, into who God is. And so what does he do? He takes his out of robe off, he, he he gets a water basin, he does the lowest the lowest job of the house, and he washes their dirty feet. And they they don't know what to do about that. Right? So earlier in Mark, I think it's Mark ten, Mark ten forty five. Jesus said, For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Nowhere, you know, your school, and, and maybe rightly so in our culture, and this is not a bad word, uh, but your school is going to want to train you and your job is going to want to train you to become leaders. right? Leaders in your community, leaders in your job, leaders in your business, leaders at church. Um, but nowhere does the Bible talk about you being a leader. It, it, but over and over and over it talks about us serving. Right? And so like this, this contrast of ideas. They, they redefine leadership. Jesus redefines leadership for us as, as serving. And He says, do what I do. Do what I do. So, um, a life lived for Jesus means serving because when you follow him you you become more like him and you naturally want to do the things that he does um, and 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 that was serve serve others and so what does that mean so that means your roommate that's annoying you um, that won't put dishes away that won't wash things that that comes home late that invites friends over and makes noise when you don't want it means like parents or siblings that invading your life or your space or not giving you or trying to control or whatever it means. It means, you know what your role in their life is? To serve them. Like, it means the, the people in this room. It means the people in your small group. It means it, like, like our job with each other is to serve, to serve each other and, and to, to let our attitude be like Christ Jesus is in, in Philippians 2 having the same attitude as Christ, that being the very nature of God, did not, did not consider equality with God, being like God, something to be held onto or grasped, but instead what He did is He, he gave that up, took on the nature of a, of a human, of a servant, being, and became human, and, and gave His life as a ransom for many, and died even a death on a cross. And so to follow Jesus is, is a life of service. 
The second thing that jumps out at me, and in, in especially in this text, is a life of suffering. In some ways, okay, this, isn't, this doesn't define us at all, totally, but in some ways to be human is to suffer. And again, we don't, we don't like that idea. Jim, Jim made a really good point this Sunday. He said, we all, we all like the idea of being humble. Remember this? I know some of you that were there at church. He says, we love the idea of being humble. I, I love to be able to say that I'm humble. I love it when, when others would say that I'm humble. But none of us want to be humiliated. And oftentimes, being humble is, is you've got to go through humiliation sometimes to be humble. And Jesus was humiliated. And, and that's exactly where he was heading. And, and he got humiliated when all his closest friends abandoned him. It's just a really interesting point. Everything in us and in our culture um, fights against this idea of suffering. We live for comfort. Um, and the Bible seems to, um, seems to say that, that suffering is kind of this, this natural part of following after Jesus. And I think there's a couple reasons for that. Now, I was talking to Drew earlier, and he pointed out, reminded me of Philippians 3. So if you have your, keep your finger in John John 13, 14 area, and turn to Philippians 3. I want to show you, show you something that Paul says. In verse 8, Philippians 3, 8. He says, indeed I count everything. He just gets done bragging about how he's a true blue super Jew. Um <laughs> You know, he talks about how he's, how he's um, born on the, yeah, circumcised on the eighth day, people of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, um, Pharisee of Pharisees, no, nobody has more zeal than him, persecuted the church, all this stuff, blameless, he says, to the law. And then verse 8, Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share, in his, share His sufferings, become like Him in His death, and that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And, and Paul seems, seems to liken, it seems to equate to knowing Jesus and knowing the power of the resurrection, which is an amazing thing, to knowing suffering. You can't, you can't experience the resurrection without going through the crucifixion, is, is how um, maybe you could say it. Another one is um, Peter, 1 Peter 4. Listen to what Peter says about it. 1 Peter chapter 4. Hebrews, James, Peter. First Peter 4 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in, in, in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, 
so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. And then jump down to verse 12. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may, be, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. So he's talking to them and he's saying, you know, rejoice when you are, are, get to suffer because of Christ. Because in that way you're sharing in, in the same suffering. And so Peter seems to um, tell them to expect it and tell them to, um, to not shy away from it. And actually in some way, when you deny your flesh for, in the passions of this world and you live for the glory of God, by nature you're going to suffer a little. Because you're, you're not going to you're not going to experience these, these passions of the flesh like, are we nat- like we naturally want. But you're going to deny those things. And, and in doing that, you, you suffer a little. And this seems to be for the glory of God. Um, look back at, at John 16. And I love this. Again, this is hours before. The very last verse of John 16. This, this should be an underliner. John 16:33. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace, and in the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. That's huge. And that, that, that goes to what Morgan was saying that He drank the cup so we didn't have to. Right? So the ultimate suffering that we would, that we would experience had we not, if, if we don't place our faith and trust in Jesus, Jesus took that suffering for us. So any suffering we experience here on earth is, is cake compared to the kind of suffering that we would experience if we denied Christ and if we turned from Him. And so He's, he's saying, listen, you're going to have tribulations, okay? You're going to suffer a little in this world, okay? That's, going to, that's just a natural part of being human, but I've overcome this all, and so we can look to Him. Third thing, last thing, is a life of submission. So service and suffering, and I just realized they're all S's. I did not do that on purpose, I promise. I would have changed it had I, had I known. Um, Anyway, a life of submission, okay? So look at this prayer again in Mark 10, or no, 14. You see Jesus' humanity in full force. This is, this is probably the most, the most you see Jesus' humanity, I think, um, in this moment. Because he literally is asking for something that God doesn't give him. He, he's literally wanting something to happen and, and God's not going to let it happen. And, and when he says, not my will, but your will, it, it, in, that, in that moment, it, I don't know how this works. I don't understand the psychology behind it all. But at some, at some point, he's, what, his will is different than God's will. That He's wanting something in God's and what, God's, what God wants is something different. 
Um, Isaiah 53, you don't have to turn there, but Isaiah 53, if you, if you don't know, is probably the, the, the greatest um, prophecy of Jesus' crucifixion and atonement for sin, written 600 years before. It, it almost describes to a T what Jesus experiences in these, these couple days. But Isaiah 53, verse 10 says, Yet it was the, w- the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Okay, he talks about um, being at grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt. So you see these, these, these things that are taking place here, right here, starting here in the garden. Um, Jesus had full confidence. Think about what he says. He says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. He has, all, he has full confidence in what God can do and, and God's power and, and ability. He, yet he asks um, to be spared while at the same time um, acting in obedient submission to God's will. What, what a beautiful picture of, of this, this intimate relationship that we can have with the Father. Okay? To to be fully confident in what God can do, to ask for what we want, and to, be, and to walk in, in obedient submission to whatever God wants. Like having that heart that says, God, I know you can do this. And, and, and we know, Jesus says, ask in my name. Ask and the Lord will give you. Ask and seek and knock. And so we know that we're, we're to ask. We know that God wants us to ask. And we can ask for what we want. And we can, we can willingly submit to whatever God, God wants. And we can walk in confidence knowing that we're praying like Jesus. I love this idea that, like, like what Morgan said, like to follow after Jesus is to live a life of submission, to, to live a life um, of actively walking in obedience to and trusting God, whatever He wants for your life. And, and I believe, like as we do this, we get to, we get to live out um, this relationship with God, this, this intimate relationship with God um, that, that not only Jesus models, but He died so that we can have. And um, this, this prayer in, that's not really a prayer actually, it's just a verse in, in Hebrews 4, but uh, it, it comes right after verse 15, it's 4, 15, and 16, but uh, in 15, it says that, uh, that we can have confidence because Jesus was tempted in every way and yet was without sin, right? So we can have confidence because... And so here we see this, this is a great example of Jesus suffering, of Jesus uh, experience, going through hardship, of Jesus wanting something and, and essentially God saying no, right? And so we get, like, if that's ever been you, Jesus understands that. And right after that, it says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace uh, to help in our time of need. So I'm going to pray and then um, a couple people are going to come up and help lead worship. And uh, I just want us to, we'll spend a couple minutes as they're getting ready, just kind of reflecting on what it would mean to live a life of, of service, of sacrifice, of submission to God. And then let me pray. God, I thank you for this beautiful and painful picture 
of our Lord suffering and falling on his face and having um, his closest friends not get him and, and abandon him. And yet at the same time, he knew that he would be re reunited with them. He knew he had hope in what you could do and, and what uh, you had sent him for. And so God, I just, I'm thankful that he not only um, paid this price for us, um, and we get, to, we get to celebrate that this weekend um, when we are reminded of the resurrection. Um, everything hinges on that moment. And God, it is an amazing moment. As Paul says, like, death has no sting. Sin has been conquered. And, um, and God, we can approach your throne of grace with confidence. So God, I'm thankful for this time. I pray that you would accept our worship um, as a, just an offering of, of gratitude and thanks and praise. In Jesus' name, amen.